Would you take your Bibles and open with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. Our text is verses 5 through 11. 2 Corinthians, the sermon card said 5 through 13. It's because 12 and 13 are just transitional verses that I, I struggled with whether I wanted to put it with verses 5 through 11 or what is to come. I've decided I'm going to put it with what is to come the next time we look at 2 Corinthians. So this morning our text is simply 5 through 11. Now, before we stand, let me say... Um, one more a note about what we can pray for, and if, if I can remember it, I will pray for this. Uh, we, we prayed for uh, Zach and Marianne for, for Providence Baptist Church in Alamo. Several years ago, we also sent out Timothy and Haley O'Day to the Salt Lake area. We know that's a hard, hard area. Um, uh, Mormonism reigns there, um, and one of my jokes with Timothy is that he had to chisel through the concrete sidewalk just to find the hard ground uh, underneath. It's, it's so difficult. And this morning, Timothy reached out to me and said, they are planning to baptize an individual who's come to faith, and it's going to give them an opportunity to have many unbelievers present as well to witness that. And his desire would be that they might hear the gospel and come to have uh, faith in Christ, and he would baptize them as well as uh, they go forward. And so, uh, let's pray for Timothy and Haley, give thanks to God for what he's done in that church, and then let's uh, direct our attention now to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, which is on page 964 of the Red Bibles. And if you're able, would you stand once more so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's pray. Father, first, we want to pray and give you thanks that today one professes faith in Christ by being baptized in Lehigh, Utah. May your word continue to go forth there unhindered. And Father, may today those unbelievers who witness this profession of faith and baptism, may you open their eyes and arrest their hearts, and may they too see the light of the gospel and the glory of the face of Jesus Christ, and may they bow their knee as well. And may this begin a work where you add daily individuals who are being saved in that area. Father, we ask for this. And Lord, for ourselves this morning, we thank you for this text. We thank you for how you work among us. We thank you for your redeeming, merciful, gracious work in the lives of your children. Would you do that again now through the preaching of your word? Would you move our hearts, give conviction where there needs to be conviction and give comfort where there needs to be comforted. You are our Father and you know what we need. Would you do for your needy children exactly what you know we need this morning? We pray this in Christ's name. 
Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want to do a few things uh, in the sermon. Some that are common, some that are maybe uncommon for us. The first thing I want to do is I want to try to describe what I think is behind what's going on in this text. If you paid attention to the reading of verses 5 through 11, you'll notice that, that Paul's referencing something, a man and, and the need to reaffirm and, and the punishment that they gave him and all of this going on. And, and you may be thinking, what is this? There's some story behind this that we don't know, and that's right. There's a story behind this that, that we don't know for certain that in some measure we need to speculate a bit on to, to try to figure out what's going on. But the nice thing is, I think between what we find in these verses and what we're going to read a little bit in chapter 7, as I have us turn over there later, I think we can pit to get, piece together rather a pretty plausible picture of what's going on that leads to the writing of this text, so that maybe it'll make sense for us. The second thing I want to do is quite common. We do it every week. I want to highlight some truths from this text and make them my sermon points and uh, walk through some things that I think we need to learn. Some of these uh, have been neglected in the history of the church. Some of them are being neglected today. Some of them, if we are not careful, we can drift from and begin to neglect ourselves. And so I want to call our attention back to the truths that I think this text highlights. And then third, we're going to corporately apply this text. This text is a call to the church at Corinth to forgive and throughout the ages, it's a cross to God's churches throughout the ages, time and places to forgive as well. And eight years ago, we had a church member who walked away from the Lord, ran after sin. And these last few weeks, maybe months, the Lord's been drawing her back. This week, pastors received an email from her, a letter saying that she is repentant ready to come back to Christ and publicly wants your forgiveness. We're going to conclude on that note. I'm so excited to get there. I would like to get there now, but I think, I think it'll be more powerful if we walk through this text to see why it's such a joy that we're going to be able to do what we're going to be able to do this morning. So let's first start with what is the situation that's going on here is what I think is going on that leads to Paul writing this text. We've been over it a number of times. You know Paul intended two visits to Corinth. He wanted to visit Corinth on his way to Macedonia. He wanted to visit Corinth on his way from Macedonia. His first visit to Corinth on his way to Macedonia was such a painful visit, he decided he wasn't going to make that second visit. One reason I think it was so painful is because I think on that first visit, Paul had a confrontation with an individual, a single man, a man who no doubt opposed him, confronted him, may have verbally attacked him, but that's not all. It, it may have been that, that some in the church of Corinth, maybe a minority, even rallied behind this man and supported him in his attack of Paul and his confrontation with Paul and his, his refusal to obey Paul and continue to walk into sin. He, he may have arrested the, 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 the imaginations and hearts of some others there. We don't know if he did or not. What we know almost certainly, it seems, is that though the majority of the Corinthians were with Paul, and loved Paul, and appreciated Paul, and, and understood that Paul was a gift from Christ to them. When this man attacked Paul, and confronted Paul, and rebuked Paul, and refused to turn away from his sin that Paul was confronting, 
in that moment, it seems that that group of Corinthians who would have said they loved Paul, it seems at best decided to remain silent. They sat on their hands. They did not act. They didn't confront that man. They didn't rebuke that man. They didn't come around to defend Paul against that man. They just let it be. And that visit was so painful then that Paul left deciding not to visit that second time. Now, to this point in our story, why do I think that's the case? Well, first of all, because when Paul writes these verses, it's clear that he's talking about a single man. Look at verse 5. Now, if anyone, see that's singular, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. It's very clear, Paul's talking about one man there, isn't he? It's this one man who needs reaffirmed, who needs forgiveness, who needs love. The reason I think that the church at Corinth was, was, was caught up in that man's sin against Paul, at the very least, by simply refusing to act, maybe giving in to cowardice and sitting around silently, is because Paul notes that this man's action affected them. He says that in verse 5, now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. In other words, I think Paul is saying is, this man caused you the pain of shame. He, he exposed the fact that you were unwilling in that moment to, to come to my side, to fight for the truth, to defend me, to rebuke him. The second thing that I think happened then, when Paul decided not to make that second visit, he decided instead to write them a letter. We've already seen this. It's a letter that Paul refers to as a painful letter. A letter that he says the Corinthians, when they read it, they were caused to grieve. But they grieved into repenting. In other words, when Paul wrote that painful letter to them that caused them grief, I think one of the things that that letter contained, that was the letter that we don't have. It's been lost to history. I think one of the things he said in that letter was I think he pointed this very fact out. When this man attacked me, confronted me, rebuked me, refused to turn from his sin, you all remained silent. And you made it look like you were on his side, guilty of the same thing. It made it look like that you're, you weren't coming and contending for me or the truth. And I call you now to exercise discipline. And I think when they read that letter, they were grieved and they indeed decided we're going to discipline this man. The reason I think that is because of two reasons. One is because of the way Paul writes in verse 6 of our text. He says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So, so some, for some way, they, they've meted out punishment. I think that's the act of church discipline. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But if you want to see this even clearer, turn over probably just one page in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And here, I think Paul puts it together very clearly what's going on. I think by the time you, we see the end of these verses, it's made clear that Paul's painful letter called them to rebuke this man and discipline him. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. His letter of grief caused them to repent. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see, now he's about to, he's about to outline for them. When you were caused grief in this letter and you repented, I'm about to describe what your repentance looked like. Now, if you were to imagine that, what, what would their repentance look like? You might be surprised by what Paul says. It catches this a little differently. Verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. Do you see? When they did not rebuke this man, it made it look like they were on his side. They, they needed to be cleared. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What punishment. When do you ever say to someone... I see your repentance in the fact that you dealt out punishment. It's when I think they had refused to discipline this man, and Paul was calling them to do so. Now he adds, at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. I'm not roping you in with this man and his sin. You've shown yourself innocent by your action. Verse 12, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong, the man, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, that was Paul, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we were comforted. It was an opportunity, this letter, for you to prove yourselves innocent, to show yourselves to be on the side of truth and to be my supporter and to discipline this man, and they indeed disciplined him. That's the punishment that Paul's referencing, I think, in our text in verse 6. But now there's a problem. This man, I think, has repented. But the Corinthians are a bit slow to restore him and forgive him and to reaffirm their love for him. And the reason they may be slow, the rationale may go something like this. They may say, listen, we were slow when we should have acted quickly. When Paul was being attacked, and Paul was being confronted, and Paul was being rebuked, and this man was continuing in his sin and determining he would stay in his sin in the face of Paul, we should have leapt to Paul's defense, and we should have disciplined that man, and we did not do that quickly. We, we, we questioned, we, we showed Paul that he should question our commitment to him and to the Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we've disciplined this man and he's repentant, Let's not make the exact opposite mistake. Maybe they're thinking this way. Let's not forgive him quickly and restore him quickly and reaffirm our love for him quickly because that might communicate to Paul that we're not taking his sin seriously. Because although he's repented, that's clear. Let's, let's, let's kind of slow walk this thing. Let him linger in his punishment and the discipline just a little longer. And Paul writes this letter this section of this letter to say, not so fast. That's why he says in verses 7 and 8, you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That's the situation, I think, that's going on behind this text 
That brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. That's the first thing I wanted to do. That's the situation. Second thing I want to do, let me note some truths I think that we can pull out from this text. And the first one is this. The church must exercise discipline against unrepentant members. The church must exercise discipline against unrepentant members. That's again what I think Paul is talking about when he says, for such a one in verse 6, this punishment by the majority is enough. When he says punishment, I think he's referring to the act of discipline. What is church discipline? Well, in its final form, church discipline is when the church takes an unrepentant sinner and removes that unrepentant sinner from the membership of the church, bans that unrepentant, uh, unrepentant sinner from joining them in the elements of the table, from eating and drinking with them, and then allows that unrepentant sinner to feel a loss of fellowship from the body. That's what church discipline is. It's not in recent days in, in the evangelical church. It's, it's, it's fallen on hard times. But historically, the church has walked in this way uh, in faithfulness, recognizing that when somebody's walking in unrepentant sin, the church is called to discipline. Now, let me note just a few things about how this is done or what goes into it. One of the things I want to note is that church discipline is exercised only when there is unrepentant, obvious sin. Only when there is unrepentant, obvious sin. It's not practiced when, when, when we might call a situation sin that's not obvious, because there are all kinds of issues that we could have conscience divisions on. Paul talks about this to the Romans. One man looks at one day as different from every other day. One man looks at every day as the same, and he's like, look, you both can have that conviction. It's fine. So if they disagree with each other, that's not one of them walking in sin and the other not, so that the one is looking saying, that man who thinks every day is alike, maybe, maybe you know, one man holds the Sabbath and, and makes sure he's going to rest every Saturday, and the other man mows grass on Saturday. Well, that's not an issue of one man walking in sin and one not. That's just an issue of conscience. So it must be an issue of obvious sin, but it also must be an issue where there is unrepentance. In other words, it's not the case that if you go to your brother or you go to your sister and you say, man, I want to confess something. Sometimes I give in to anger, and I want to fight that sin. And they say, brother, sister, whatever, I'm going to walk with you. And you say, great. And they pray with you, and you pray with them. And then several weeks passed, and, and, and you say, uh, how are things going? They say, how are things going? And you say, well, great. I've really not uh, had any flare-ups of anger in my life. And they say, that's great, man. It looks like you're really demonstrating repentance. And then the next week you come back and you go, I got bad news. I was at the office and, and something happened in the office and it was very disappointing and I lost my temper in the office. Well, that's not the time for that brother to pounce on you and go, well, unrepentant sin. We're going to discipline you. No, no, no. That's a brother fighting his sin. That's what obedience looks like. Believers are not marked by perfect obedience. We are marked by willingness to repent, aren't we? And so... Discipline happens when there is unrepentant, obvious sin. Another note I'll say about it is discipline reminds us that the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to repent with the least amount of humiliation possible. Lord Jesus Christ wants us to repent. Now note this, if you've, if you've never gotten us, because this is so crucial. He wants us to repent with the least amount of humiliation possible. What do I mean? Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 18. 
If your brother, if you have an offense, your brother has an offense against you, you have an offense against your brother, go to him one-on-one. So your brother sinned against you. Jesus says, I want you to go to him one-on-one and address the issue. And if he repents of his sin, you've won your brother and all is well. And you know who else knows about that sin in that moment? Nobody. Why? Because there's no need, if the sin has been done privately, there's no need for you to humiliate your brother. In other words, if somebody does something sinful against me, it's not an opportunity for me to go out and tell everybody else what that individual did. It's an opportunity for me to go to my brother and call him to repentance, and if he repents, to make sure his humiliation goes no further than me and him. Repentance with the amount of humiliation possible. Now, what if, we say, the brother doesn't repent when you go to him one-on-one? Well, Jesus anticipated this. So he said, if he doesn't repent, then take two or three witnesses. Now you can see that, that the level of exposure, the level of humiliation, if you will, is now a bit broader, isn't it? Because you're saying, this is how serious your repentance is. Now two or three witnesses, you confront him in his sin. What if then he refuses to repent? Jesus says in Matthew 18, then tell it to the church. Then you make the exposure of a sin broad. You, you tell it to the church as a whole. Now the humiliation, if you will, has grown to the greatest extent possible. You've now told it to the whole church. But the reason is because you see what a desperate state your brother is in and you're calling him to repentance. If he will not repent even then, you exercise that final form of discipline. Remove him from the church, ban him from the table, and allow him to feel the loss of fellowship. Now, with that said, you may say, well, hold on a second. I've read 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians 5, it doesn't seem like Paul followed those steps. Did Paul have no understanding of repentance with the least amount of humiliation possible? The reason I say that is because if you read 1 Corinthians 5, Paul starts that chapter saying, it is reported among you. In other words, he's just gotten word of something happening at the church of Corinth. What he's gotten word of is that an individual there is in sexual immorality with his father's wife, probably a stepmother. And Paul says, listen, that's not even done among the pagans. Purge this brother. Purge the evil one from your midst. He's saying, exercise discipline. Remove him. Now, if we ask Paul, well, hold on a second, Paul. What's all this publicly naming his sin and publicly telling the church to exercise discipline? Because, Paul, you didn't go meet with him one-on-one. You didn't then take a couple witnesses. Why are you doing this so publicly? Paul's answer would have been, because the man's sin was public, there's no need to walk through those first steps of guarding and hoping nobody knows his sin. Everybody knew his sin. It was even being reported to Paul. So when the sin is public, it's dealt with publicly isn't it? So, so this is the first note that I want us to see in the text. It's a note that, can, that we can easily miss, but it's crucial. The church must exercise discipline against unrepentant members because the church must love its members enough to do whatever is necessary for their repentance. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ prescribes. Truth number two, the goal of discipline is repentance and restoration. The goal of discipline is repentance and restoration. In other words, when we have to discipline someone, no doubt done with tears running down our face, right? Remember the text last week. We do not delight in causing another pain. 
when we have to discipline someone, it is done simply, simply, merely for the sake that that individual may repent. In other words, there's not any lingering punishment. Now, the reason I say that, and we can see that in this text, is if you look at verse 7, well, we'll start in verse 6. Paul says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So it's enough, he says. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, why? We know from another church discipline case, 1 Corinthians 5. Paul was saying, this is not even done among pagans. Remove the individual from the church. Purge the evil one from your midst. Well, if they did that, why is Paul now saying, forgive, comfort, reaffirm your love? The answer is because something happened, obviously, between the goal of discipline with this man and this moment, and what happened is repentance. And what Paul is showing is that the aim of discipline is always repentance. And once repentance happens, well, this brings us to point three. The aim of discipline is always repentance, point three. Once there is repentance, the church must forgive and restore. So once the individual who has been disciplined repents and says, the reason I've been disciplined is because I was unrepentant, I'm unrepentant no longer. I'm ready to repent of my sin and return to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want the forgiveness of the church body. The church body is obligated to forgive. Let's walk through this. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So when the individual repents, can you say, the discipline that we've imposed on this individual, barring him from the table, barring him from fellowship, banning him from the membership of the church, when the individual repents, can you say, but now we want to continue carrying that on against the individual. Make him really feel it. Make him really, really know what he's done. Paul says that's not an option. When there's repentance, punishment is enough. Well, let's look at verse 7. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Maybe you then say this. Okay, fine. So, so when the individual repents, we're going to restore him to the church, but, but, but is there an option for us to restore him, but let him know, hey, we're going to always remind you of what you did. Always let you know that you're not really forgiven. You're a second-class citizen, maybe. Paul says, no, that's not an option. You need to forgive him, and you need to comfort him. Because we do not want him to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Why? Because his sorrow was for the purpose of leading to repentance, and that's been achieved. No excessive sorrow needed. Okay, you might say, but what about restoring, forgiving, comforting, but not really letting him know we love him, right? Maybe, maybe all that's true, but you're kind of a second-class citizen, still an outsider? Look at verse 8. So I beg you, Paul says, to reaffirm your love for him reaffirm your love. It's not only that we forgive, it's not only that we comfort, but we reaffirm we love you. Paul will say in verse 9, this is why I wrote 
that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. In other words, the reason I wrote that painful letter in part was I wanted to see if you would obey. And that obedience not only required discipline, which you've done, it also requires once that man repents that you restore and that you comfort and that you forgive and that you love. This then brings us to our last truth I want to note. If we refuse obedience here, we are working in league with Satan. If we refuse obedience here, we're working in league with Satan. Someone could say, well, Paul, the reason we don't want to forgive and restore and reaffirm our love for him was that he did wrong to you, and we love you. Paul responds to that in verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. I'm leading the way here. I forgave so that you might follow and forgive to honor Christ. But then he says this in verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. Paul says at this moment, you and I could be outwitted by the enemy. We know his designs. I would say to us, we know his designs as well, don't we? If you want to know Satan's designs, just think of what the Lord Jesus Christ commands and invert them. Think of 1 John 2, 1. This is one of my favorite examples. John says in 1 John 2, 1, These things have I written to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. Do you see what he's saying there? Don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Okay, you have sinned. There's hope for you. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. You know what the devil does? The exact opposite of that. Sin, sin, sin. Okay, you have sinned. You're condemned. There's no hope. You're guilty. He wants nothing to do with you. He inverts. And so it is here. What would be Satan's design here? It would be one that the church never exercises the work of discipline. You see your brother or your sister walking in unrepentant sin and you refuse to love them enough to do what's necessary to bring about their repentance. And, or, number two, if you've done the first one and then they repent, his design would be make sure they're always branded with a scarlet letter. Make sure they're always know they're not really part of us. They're forever on the outside. And that's why Paul says, I wrote to you that you might obey both in disciplining, but now in forgiving, in comforting, in restoring, and in reaffirming your love. And when we do that, we are walking in league with Jesus. When we refuse to do it, we are being outwitted by Satan and walking according to his designs. One man said a number of decades ago, we live in a time in which everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. How much more true is that today? But may it not be so in the church. Now, this leads me then to the final thing I want to do in the sermon. Corporate application. Eight years ago, <clears throat> we had a church member. And we got news one day that she had very quickly, a very abrupt way, married herself an unbelieving man who was part of the Jehovah's Witnesses. When the pastors got news, we were shocked by this. We met with her. We warned her. When you do the work of discipline, the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5 is you're handing an individual over to Satan for the destruction of his or her flesh so that they might be restored, right, for the sake of repentance. 
we warned her. We said, <clears throat> by resigning, she, was, she resigned her membership as well in that moment. We said, by resigning your membership, in essence, you're handing yourself over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh. With that warning, expression of love, prayer, we then begin a period of eight years where she walked in rebellion to the Lord Jesus Christ. According to her own testimony, um, Shelby tells us that for the last eight years, she pursued everything outside of repenting and everything outside of obedience to Christ to find her happiness, whether it was fitness or a career or becoming part of the Jehovah's Witness and being baptized. And then something happened. In 2020, COVID hit with every evil design, and the Lord was working good. In 2020, just as a number of churches stopped meeting for a while, so did the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall. And this gave Shelby time to begin to search the scriptures again. And as she searched the scriptures, as she would say, those eight years of rebellion, the Spirit was constantly convicting her of her sin. And as she turned back and began searching the scriptures again, again, the Spirit began convicting her of her sin. But this time in a way that she knew she had no choice. She was ready to repent of her sin and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so she went to her husband and she said, I've been searching the scriptures. And I want to tell you, I must turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I must believe what the Bible teaches. And what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach and practice is an error and not in accord with the Bible. And this is why I need to turn back to Christ. Her husband told her something that was true. Here's what it's going to cost you. The friends that you've made over the last eight years in the Jehovah's Witness community, they're going to shun you. Your in-laws, my family, they're going to shun you as well. In many ways, telling his wife, you're choosing a path of isolation from the friends and family that you've had over the last eight years. She began, Shelby, Shelby French was her name when we received her new membership. Shelby Bond is her name now, uh, married to this man. Shelby reached out to Tom a number of weeks ago and then began visiting us again the last couple of weeks. This week, she sent a letter, an email, outlining her repentance. I'm going to post this email on the communion app so that the members of Cornerstone can read this. But I want to pick up and just read a couple paragraphs from her letter. It's right after she outlines the fact that she's told her husband that she's about to repent and turn back to Jesus Christ and based her life on the Word of God. And he's told her what it will cost her. Here's what she writes. These are very painful things to hear my well-intentioned husband say, but nothing is more painful than losing Jesus Christ in my life. I'm so thankful for God's mercy and grace on my life. I could not have done this of my own accord. And I'm in amazement that even after eight years of living my own sinful way while knowing biblical truth, God would draw me back to him. I'm thankful for what Jesus has done for me on the cross and through faith and repentance, my sins are forgiven, even though I don't deserve it. As mentioned, I repent of my sins to God, but I also want to openly ask all the members of Cornerstone for forgiveness. I'm truly sorry, especially to the ones I've hurt when I turn my back on God 
and such a wonderful church family. I pray that you all can forgive me. Now, I'm going to ask Shelby, Shelby Bond, uh, if she would meet with me here in the front. Because first I want to outline the providence of God in this moment. This is a sermon card. Now, I'm the most anal planner in the world. I once planned 15 years worth of preaching. I regularly plan ahead when I'm preaching. The first date on this card is November 6th. It's the date Timothy O'Day was here. That means I put this card together in November, four months ago. This week, Shelby writes an email to the pastors saying, I want to repent and turn back to Christ. And I ask that you all would forgive me. And you know what text the Lord had ordained for me to preach today when I would receive this letter this week? That text we just looked at. Do you think this moment is in any way a mistake? Shelby, as I said to you in the first service, I think this moment and this text being preached today is the Lord Jesus Christ making clear to you, you are doing well. He is pleased with what you've done. He is wanting to affirm in a very public way you're doing the very thing that we see in that text that's so glorious. In church, he is saying to us, I want to make clear in case anyone missed it what your response must be. Restoration, forgiveness, comfort, and a reaffirmation of love. Now, Shelby wants to rejoin us. Uh, Tom and Aaron met with her last Sunday, talked to her about the new members class. But we wanted to do this now because we don't want to delay the public affirmation of our forgiveness and restoration of our sister. We also are about to come to the table, and we're going to welcome her to join with us as we come. So I want to ask you, in a public way, would you express your forgiveness, her restoration, your comfort, and reaffirm your love for our dear sister by saying amen? Amen. amen. And then you can applaud if you want. You can stay with me. You can stay with me. Now, we've not done this since COVID began, but I'm going to ask you to do it this morning because this is such a glorious moment. I'm going to ask all the members of Cornerstone who feel, who feel comfortable. If you don't feel comfortable, that's fine. But let's gather around our sister. Let's lay hands on her. Let's pray for her this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are so utterly wise. 
that you are coordinating every moment to lead to this one. You did not have us preach on the last text or the next text, but this text. And you brought Shelby at this moment, I think, so that she might know loud and clear she is walking and keeping in step with the Spirit of the living God who is guiding a church family to love her. So, Father, we happily this morning affirm our forgiveness, our love, our comfort. God, we thank you for our sister, and we pray for her. Lord, she is now in a hard place. Lord, for her husband, we pray that you would open his eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that there might be a day when he bows his knee to Jesus and he stands right up here at the front of the church and we lay our hands on him and Shelby. Father, we pray that you would strengthen Shelby. You tell us in 1 Peter 3 to the, to the wife who is married to an unbelieving husband to walk with respect. Accept where she is commanded to sin, to respect him, to submit to him. That he might be won over without a word. Give her strength to do that. And Father, even as he has truthfully spoken of the shunning that will happen from some friends, family that she's made over the last eight years, Father, may you make it clear to her the hundredfold fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters that she has right here. And may we love her well and pray for her, and walk with her, and uphold her when she is weak, and let her know that we are linking arms with her as we all walk toward the celestial city. Thank you, Father, for this mercy in which we are reminded, for this uh, day, this moment in which we are reminded of your mercy, because we all desperately need it. We all stand in the same place right now. We are forgiven because of the work of Christ, and because of that, we give thanks now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, as you're returning to your seats, we're going to get up out of them once more here in a second. Um, so I'm going to let we have Brian, whoever.